Hi everyone, I'm Tanya Luna, a psychology researcher and educator. And I'm Brian Luna. I read comic books. And this is Talk Psych to Me. A show where I explain research and theories from the field of psychology. And I try to keep up. Let's go. In our last episode, we talked about some confusing emotions, if you mm-hmm. recall, like yes. crying when you're happy or the phenomenon of cute aggression. Dimorphous expression. Dimorphous expression, that's right. So those were confusing emotions. Today we're talking about emotional confusion. That's when you think you're feeling one thing and you're actually feeling something else. Okay. So what's interesting about us humans is that we feel stuff all the time and our emotions influence our emotions. So they influence the things that we do. But sometimes we don't really know what we're feeling. Is that like anger and hurt? Like I know growing up, like in Texas, whenever someone would get like betrayed or, or, or hurt, you know, like emotionally hurt, then we would lash out. Like we would uh, immediately throw hands or throw fists or something yep, like that. That's, that's a great, that's a great example of that. Okay. I think that the more we can understand our emotions, the more we can be thoughtful about the actions we take, the more mm-hmm. empathetic we could be when other people are, let's say, lashing out at us. And instead of being like, wow, this person's a jerk, you can be like, huh, maybe they're dealing with some deeper issues. So the one that I wanted to start with is one I think you and I know well, which is the emotion of hanger. <laughs> can you tell us in your own words? Yeah, everyone's got a word for it. Hangry, hanger. It's basically when you don't eat Every... Wait, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Were you were those the two options that people have words for? Either hanger or hangry? <laughs> hangry or um fury hungry. Uh you know that one? Yeah. Rangry, like raging angry. Anyway, the point is is that take someone like, I don't know, I'm gonna use let's call her Lanya. <laughs> if Lanya Tuna hasn't eaten in every 45, 50 minutes, she gets really upset. And all of a sudden, the TV's too loud. All of a sudden, I'm I'm stomping too loud on the floor or, um, you know, I'm chewing too loud or something like that. You know, so, yeah. I feel like that got a little personal really fast. (laughs) It turns out hanger has actually been adopted by the Oxford Dictionary in 2018, I believe. It's a real word. (laughs) So it's now a real concept. It also seems to be a real psychological phenomenon, but there are different theories for it. So I'll share with you a couple of theories and then together we can figure out why do you think (laughs) some people get upset when you stomp around or have the TV on too loud. (laughs) So one school of thought known as the regulatory depletion hypothesis posits that when you're hungry or when we're hungry, our blood glucose levels drop, leading us to have less self-control over our own behavior. You're already Mm. giving me a little bit of a... Yeah, it sounds like the Twinkie defense. What's the Twinkie defense? The Twinkie defense is... that guy, I don't know if I got the facts right, but uh, I think the, uh, in the 80s or something, or in the, early, or in the 90s, some guy killed somebody and his defense uh, used the term that he hadn't eaten and he, his blood sugar was low, so he actually killed somebody because, and they called it the Twinkie defense because had he just had a Twinkie, he probably wouldn't have killed anyone or, or something like that. Uh, so I'm actually, I, I... I'm looking this up right now on a psychological database called Wikipedia. <laughs> am I am I close? Uh, it says that the expression derives from the 1979 trial of oh, A1 Dan White. He was a San Francisco police officer and a, psycho- a psychiatrist testified that White had been depressed at the time of the crime and pointed to several behavioral changes, including eating a lot of Twinkies, it seems like. Oh, so, so I was pretty much right on. So, But it sounds like... <laughs> I think uh. your interpretation was he didn't have enough. <laughs> <laughs> if only I had a Twinkie. <laughs> That's how I am with Dr. Pepper. <laughs> yeah, I've seen you get that one. more Dr. Pepper. Okay, so through this lens, it's not that hunger makes us angry mm-hmm. per se. It's that hunger makes us unable to regulate our emotions. So in other words, we can't cool down. 
or mask the anger that we're, that's kind of like rumbling under the surface. Hmm. So I want to share with you, actually, we'll recreate a study that was conducted at Florida State University by Nathan DeWall, just to see what's the impact of these stimuli on your okay. own experience of hunger. Okay. Okay, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is tell me a joke. Then what I'm going to do is take note of it, and I'm going to email <laughs> it to someone that okay. is experienced in joke telling. So I need you to tell me the joke. I'm going to write it out, send it to this person, and then we're going to get some feedback on the joke. Jeez, like a one-liner? Uh, it doesn't have to be one-liner. Okay. <laughs> this is one of my favorites. So this polar bear is walking through the North Pole, and um, he, he, he gets to a bar. And he walks in, and everyone greets him. Hey, you know, Kevin, whatever. And, and, and he goes up to the bartender, and he goes, hey. And the bartender goes, hi, how you doing? Uh, what can I get you? And the polar bear goes, can I get a rum and... Coke? And the bartender goes, yeah, but why the big pause? And he goes, I don't know. I've always had them. <laughs> um, okay, luckily, I already knew you were going to tell that joke. Because anytime I ask you to tell a joke, that's the joke you tell. So I've already sent this joke <laughs> to our official joke critic. So uh, probably within about I didn't write a minute. It. <laughs> but you like it. It's the best joke in the world. It's a, yeah. it's a joke you can tell at any party. You don't have to be. You tell it in front of kids. Do you, you go to a lot it. of parties? No. Okay. I'm not invited to a lot of places. Just check. Uh, but like, you know, you can tell it to a lot of kids. I mean, or you can tell it to like a bunch of people. It's just the idea of the bear holding up his two paws and being like, I don't know. I've always had them. I love polar bears too. I okay. Guess. I so, so actually very, very soon we're going to get some feedback on this joke. In right. the meanwhile... You keep telling me that. I don't no. know. Yeah. In the meanwhile, I'm just going to show you something. Mm-hmm. Well. Ooh. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. Okay. You're going to give it to me now? Yeah. 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 Okay. Don't do anything with it yet, but could you just describe what, what I've given to you? Yeah. And how um, you feel about it, maybe. This is... Uh, Pan de huevo. This is a Mexican sweet bread. It's a. It looks like a, it's called a concha, which is like a, a conch shell. It's yellow, which is my favorite one, uh, and it is so good. It's like this big, pillowy, uh, little pastry, um, but it's not glazed or nothing like you know a lot of like French and like. Okay, white. that's too much detail. So okay. um, I'm actually going to ask you to take a bite, and as you take a bite, okay. after the first bite, like as soon as it kind of hits your tongue, yeah. I want you to describe the first sensation or the first reaction. Okay. Ready? Wait, wait. Actually, wait, wait. Don't. Sorry. Okay. Don't do that yet. Okay. <laughs> actually, can I get that back? Sorry, sorry. Sorry. I, I right. just got the feedback back, so I just get feedback first. Okay. Okay, the feedback on your joke <laughs> is, uh, this was one of the worst jokes I've ever heard. They... That's not... Sorry, let me just read that again. This was one of the worst jokes I've ever heard. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. Who wouldn't like that joke? So this is pretty much how the study went, except they used a donut instead of a concha. They would say, go ahead and take a bite. And then the researcher would go, oh, sorry, I made a mistake. Don't do that. That was part of the experiment? You took my thing away from the stupid experiment? You went and got, you used one of my conchas for it. In one condition, they had the participant resist eating a donut. They actually had to not bite it, and then sit in the room with it for five minutes, just trying not to eat it. And in the other condition, they had to resist eating a radish, which is presumably a much easier task for most people. Yes, low. Psychologists can do some really messed you're up good. things. You're good. You will be good. hearing about this Man, throughout the Man, you're a liar. Show. Oh, you're a good liar. 
So, so you're saying they never even got to bite them? No, they were So they about- put it in their mouth just like you did to me. So what happened was I had it in my mouth, y'all. Um, I was literally about to bite down. Saliva was all over it. And then she Ooh. told me to... She goes, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. I didn't even get a chance. I only had a little piece of sugar around my lips and that's it. That's exactly what they did. So we oh, recreated man. We recreated that study. <laughs> and then... Science is dumb. What I told you, what I told you, you know how I asked you to tell the joke? Yeah. So in their, in their experiment, these were undergraduate students and they had them write an essay. Oh. And then separately they had them take a bite of the donut or rather not get the bite of the donut. And then after they told them that they couldn't get the donut, they would come back with feedback about their essay allegedly from another student saying this was the worst essay that I've ever read. <laughs> what the So what they wanted to find out essentially is how aggressive would students get as a result of being told that their essay was horrible? Would hanger essentially creep up? Would they get more aggressive because they were they had to resist that impulse yeah. to bite down on the donut. Now if you were the mad scientist in this study, how might you measure aggression? First of all, let me just say that this is why people don't believe in climate change. <laughs> because y'all are some cruel, cruel sons of you bitches. You think psychologists have something to do with climate change? I think change? all scientists. I think it, I'm putting I'm lumping y'all in one big thing. Okay. All right. Um, well, I, I, I would think that they would get a little more defensive. Like make excuses, I would imagine. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a slight aggression. It's not like punching someone in the face. But it's still like defending your territory defending yeah. your property so they did they did something like that they basically had people do a self-report of how much aggression they were feeling and they did something else what am i holding right here oh my tapatio my uh, hot sauce yes so what they said was here you go here's some hot sauce fix a snack for the person that gave you feedback <laughs> oh <Whoa>, nice <laughs> and they would actually track how much hot sauce would they put on the snack of the other student who presumably didn't like hot sauce in the resist the donut versus, you know, sit in a room with a radish condition. Okay. So it turns good. out that the students who resisted the donut really displayed a lot more aggression than the students who heard the same insult but didn't have to resist the donut. So to summarize, I got you. in this hypothesis, hunger leads to low blood sugar. Low blood sugar leads to less self-control. Less self-control leads to poor emotion regulation. So the more we try to self-regulate, the less able we are to regulate our anger. If I can ask a question. Yeah. Is this like first world problems? Because like for people who are starving, people who like are hungry all the time, mm. are they don't appear or seem more aggressive. You're telling me there's, you wouldn't make the case that in places where there's more hunger, there's more violence? Ooh, nice. <laughs> I'm not nice. suggesting that everyone's nice. hangry. No. <laughs> so you're thinking... Take something like, uh, you know, civil wars in Africa. Just that eat people. Which is just a or couple, donuts. some donuts or conchas. There we okay. go. We've, we're solving, we're solving so many problems. Solving problems show. right now. Boom. Obviously, we know that's oversimplifying, but it, it's it's interesting to, to talk about, like in such a big scope. Yeah. Um, okay. So I personally find this explanation of regulatory depletion theory very compelling i do want to point out though that it's been contentious in the field of psychology lately because it has had some issues with replication so i'll look at an alternative hypothesis with you okay does that sound good so this theory of hanger explains it as affect misattribution in other words attributing our emotions to the wrong stimulus 
In a paper called Feeling Hangry, researchers Jennifer McCormick and Kristen Lindquist from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill point out that hunger physically feels a lot like anger. So both states trigger cortisol, they activate the anterior cingulate cortex, the insula, the amygdala. So when we feel hungry and someone does something kind of ambiguous, we get confused and we interpret our own feelings as anger. Hmm. What do you think of this explanation? So basically you're saying like our, our go-to emotion when we're hungry is anger. No. The idea is that the physiology of hunger and the physiology of anger gotcha. are almost identical. Okay. And your brain is like, Duh, I guess I must be angry. <laughs> so maybe if you're kind of in that place of hunger where you're not quite even self-aware enough that it's hunger. Yeah. You haven't gotten to that place where you're like fantasizing about food and everyone turns into like a cartoon steak. You know, when you're like yes, that hungry. absolutely. Except for for me, it's like they're a cartoon broccoli. Tofu. <laughs> <laughs> I really like this theory of anger because it explains why our 10 o'clock rule works really well. Mm. Could you tell folks what our 10 o'clock rule is? 10 o'clock rule is very, it is saved. Look, what a lot of people don't realize is we're on the brink of divorce several times. <laughs> no. Um, our 10 o'clock rule basically means after 10 o'clock, we're not allowed to talk about anything serious. We can only talk about like... Loosey goosey stuff, goofy stuff after 10 p.m. Because so, can you give me an example of something we could talk about at 9:30 p.m. that we wouldn't be able to talk about at 10 p.m. Finances, yep. and then at 10 o'clock we're allowed to talk about cartoons, um, music. Unless uh, I insult your music, unless, unless I'm ins- like the Sex Pistols sound like noise. I can only I say that at nine, like 8:45 p.m. <laughs> yeah, maybe even earlier because that. And I if understand. I say it at 10:30, you're like, you don't no, understand who you I s- am. You said the Ramones sound like noise. No. That's ins- yeah, you okay, said the I was Ramones. In a bad mood that you were in a te- she was hangry. So we were driving the other day, and she was hangry, and I was playing the Ramones, and I love the Ramones. She knows that, and and she likes the Ramones as well in the past. And then all of a sudden, she was like, "I hate that song. I hate the Ramones. They sound like noise." And I was like, Arr! and I was driving, and I was like, "What is this? Let's go get an Impossible Whopper or something. Let's let's fix this." So yeah, I get it. So it's a really good rule because what we realized is that. By around 10 o'clock, we would get sleepy and we would Mm. get hungry. So it was just really better to not talk. Mm -hmm. We stopped talking about laundry, remember? We stopped Mm -hmm. talking about who does the cat litter. Everything. Even even like um, uh, uh, chores and stuff. Yeah. I still think as adults, we should stop calling them chores. (laughs) What do you call it? Housework? Like responsibility. Ah, it's too too heavy-handed. Anyway, so the 10 o'clock rule is amazing. I think it's like a secret to our success. Yeah, absolutely. As a couple, pretty much just that. And I like how you look, so that that's yeah, that's a good. I like how I look too. I'll be honest. <laughs> so, hanger can be dangerous for relationships, and research reveals that hanger might be dangerous in other situations too. So, researchers Shai Danzinger, Jonathan Levab, and Leora Avniam Paso from Columbia Business School and Ben Gurion University in Israel evaluated 1,112 judicial rulings in 727 cases. So, pretty good yeah, sample size yeah. there including crimes of embezzlement, assault, theft, murder, and rape. So we're talking about all the real yeah. criminal the, yeah, some, activity. Some, yeah. And so what they wanted to know is if time of day... I was just about to say, don't even tell me <laughs> what. So if they want to know, did time of day impact whether the judges ruled favorably or unfavorably? What would your hypothesis I be? I would imagine that when the judge is hungry, everyone's getting life in 25 years. <laughs> Yeah, I'd imagine like after 12 p.m. and judges' lunch is at 2, then I'd imagine people are getting some pretty stiff sentences. Yeah. Beginning of the day, the rulings start off 65% favorable. Then little by little, they drop to nearly zero (gasps) in the afternoon. Wait, you mean like 
no favor. Yeah, exactly. By what? the FBI. Then this is my favorite part. They take a lunch break. The rulings jump back up to 65% That's favorable. Insane. So how do they... Okay, if they can and look at And then they drop that, down again gradually. I mean, so what, what, what are you saying? If you're going to commit a really, really bad crime, make sure you get in front of the judge first thing in the morning. Right. Yeah. So as much as possible, either first thing in the morning or right after lunch. Yeah, right. <laughs> or so I like, guess you could bring TV. donuts. Or pizza. Order pizza in. Order a pizza. Yeah. But the worst part would be if you order a pizza, the judge smells pizza, can't eat the pizza, then you're guilty no matter what. What if the judge is vegan like me? I don't know any judges that are vegan. I can't think of one. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's hanger. That's oh, a wrap nice. on hanger. Hanger. Wrap on hanger. Moving on. So there's another emotion we humans tend to get confused about that I wanted to touch on, and mm-hmm. that is nervousness versus excitement. Can oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So just like hanger and anger, nervousness and excitement feel physically very similar. Mm-hmm. They are what's called physiologically congruent. Or the same. <laughs> they feel the same. Why, why, why do you guys have to put some, like, it's like you guys get paid by the syllable or something. <laughs> so what sucks about this physiological congruence, thank you, I'll take that dollar and I'll take that dollar. <laughs> what sucks about that is that sometimes when, we, when we're excited, when we're just excited, which is delightful, we interpret that physical sensation as nervousness. And so we don't get to enjoy it as much as we could. But the good news is that you can actually take advantage of this misattribution tendency. So here's a fun study that illustrates this point. This one's conducted by Allison Wood Brooks at Harvard Business School. Brooks recruited a group of participants to karaoke in front of a group of strangers, specifically singing a song that I'm going to invite you, Brian, to sing for us in just a moment. yeah. (laughs) So the better they sang, as judged by the karaoke program, the more money they made. She then assigned participants to either say to themselves, I'm anxious, I'm excited, or nothing. Okay. Right, what's your guess? Mm, Which group performed sorry. best? Mm, <laughs> uh, sorry. Mm, I feel like... The people who told themselves they were excited rocked the house. And the people who told themselves they were nervous were like... That like they were like the Sister Mary Francis in Sister Act, the first one. Okay, so if that's your hypothesis, I want you to just say that to yourself a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, say it out loud. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm. Ex- Why does mine sound creepy? <laughs> I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited. Okay. So now, please take a look at the email I sent you earlier. You'll see the lyrics. I believe you already know the music to this, and I'm going to ask you to sing for the world. Can you hum the music just so I, I know it? Oh, okay. I feel like you're tricking me into no, 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 no. I just, because I, if I only see the thing, I can't get down. Okay, just say it again. Um, say, those, say the thing to, to yourself again. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm, a, I'm excited. Okay, so. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. She took the midnight train going anywhere. Just a city boy, a born and raised in Santa Detroit. He took the midnight train going anywhere. All right. That's really, that's pretty good. No, that wasn't, but I appreciate it. So this is literally the lyrics that she had them sing in the yeah. experiment. So I wanted to recreate a little bit of that experiment. For a minute, I forgot that we were sharing this with everyone we know and they're going to hear me sing. But um, I threw myself into it. I, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, self-conscious, which you know I don't like singing in front of people, uh, especially people I don't know. 
So I just felt a little freer. I felt like um, uh, more open. Okay. And on a scale of zero to a hundred percent, what do you what score would you, do you think you'd give yourself if you were judging <laughs> the quality of the performance? Oh, I think I got like a. 77. 77. Okay, we'll leave it to our listeners to let us know what they think the, the score should be. Really an 87. <laughs> so so here, were, here were the findings. It turns out that you were exactly right. The I'm Excited group significantly outperformed the others. So the average score for the group that told themselves I'm excited was 80.5% versus mm-hmm. the other folks got a 53%. Damn. Which is really cool. That tells you that it's not just that it feels different, it actually impacts your performance. So in a different study, Brooks had participants do a public speaking challenge into a camera, and she had participants either say, I'm excited or I'm calm before doing a speech. So I'm the other excited. one was, I'm excited versus I'm nervous. This one yeah. is, I'm excited versus I'm calm. Mm-hmm. The reason she did that is really interesting. She actually did this previous study where she asked people, what is the best advice you can give to someone when they're feeling nervous? And 85% of people said trying to calm down was the best advice. Huh. Would you agree with that, by the way, when you're feeling nervous? No. Public speaking jitters, trying to calm down? No. So she wanted to see if people try to calm down, try mm-hmm. to tell themselves they're calm versus tell themselves they're excited when they're actually feeling nervous, mm-hmm. who would do better? What's your hypothesis? I, I, I 100% believe that the excited people did better. And you are 100% correct. So yeah. the I'm excited group significantly outperformed the faux right. calm group. They came across as more persuasive, more confident, and more competent. I think this is a really fun finding because it's just a reminder for us that the way we feel, it's mm-hmm. not like it's reality. It's just how we're interpreting the sensations that we have. I remember when you were jumping out of a plane recently uh, this past <laughs> this past summer, and it was terrifying to me. So I, I read a lot with about a parachute. It. With a parachute, what I was reading about that is that the sensation of falling and flying, your body can't tell when you're that high up. So what I would tell people, especially as an actor, as a performer, uh, whenever someone experienced stage fright, including myself, I would always tell myself falling and flying are the same thing, especially when you're coming out of that plane. So you have the option on how you want to do this. And falling means that gravity's taking over and you have no control over anything. But flying, you can be artistic. Flying, you can be anything you want to be. So that. that's that's how I would use that is uh, giving anyone advice is don't go up there to let the ground hit you. Let the sky catch you. I love that. I think an emotion related to anxiety that we get confused about often is stress. Hmm. We're always complaining about feeling stressed. I know I am. I feel like that's something I've heard you say from time to time. What's interesting about stress, though, is that it's not always a bad thing. If we keep interpreting it as bad, we might miss out on some really great aspects of stress. There's a great term from the field of sports psychology known as the zone of optimal arousal. It's a bit of a sexy term there for you. (laughs) So it refers to the curvilinear relationship that exists between stress and performance. What I mean by curvilinear is, so take football, for example. Imagine playing football and feeling no stress. What would happen? I would imagine if you played with no stress, meaning no sense of alert, there's going to be injuries, there's going to be blown assignments. I think injuries would be like the highest thing, mm. like the like the biggest factor. So you're not vigilant. Maybe you're not paying attention. Not paying attention. Your 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 head's not on a swivel. You're not really protecting yourself. You're not protecting your your teammates. Okay. okay. Now take the flip side. So against curvilinear. So now we mm-hmm. talked about the the low stress side of the spectrum. Probably leads to low performance. Talk to me about 
incredibly high levels of stress. What's the impact of that? I think the incredible high levels of stress is people tend to seize up and not make a decision. I've seen that so many times when someone's going to make a tackle and there's a really talented running back, you know, with some genius feet coming at you and and you don't really know what to do. You don't do anything at all and you get frozen in your tracks Mm. and the guy runs around you. You choke. I also want to point out that you make fun of me for the terminology we use in psychology. Like we try to make it sound bigger than it is. Assignments, genius feet. (laughs) (laughs) It's a ball (laughs) that a bunch of people are throwing back and forth. I'm just saying. (laughs) That's just my two cents. I am not a footballer, however, so what do I know? (laughs) Footballer. So the goal is the optimal level of stress, like the Goldilocks level of stress, otherwise known as the zone of optimal arousal. Another way to think about stress is that it's actually an umbrella term referring to pressure or tension exerted on us physically, mentally, or emotionally. And so if you have so much pressure that you can't handle it, that's actually called hyperstress. But there's also hypostress, which is the stress of not being stimulated enough. Tell me the last time you felt hypostressed. <laughs> I don't know how to say it without offending you. <gasps> Just kidding. Um <laughs> Wow. Um, like, you know when people talk about, like, imagining hell, it's usually hyper-stress in reality. Yeah. What would be a hypo-stress hell for you? Ugh. I guess, like, a a bad show, like going to see a bad play or something. At least it's a show. I was thinking, like, the post office, like, waiting in line. Oh, so traffic. Traffic. Traffic is, is my hypo-stress because I'm not doing anything. You know, as we're talking about this, I'm getting a little bit sad thinking about animals at the zoo, Mm. Um, particularly in in the U.S. There's been a lot of focus on creating enrichment programs for animals because animals in captivity, even though you look at them and you're like, oh, you're safe. No one's chasing you. No one's trying to eat you. You can get incredibly stressed because there's not enough going on in your life. That's why there's a lot of effort now to make sure that if animals ever are kept in captivity, that they're essentially their lives are made slightly more difficult. Same thing for humans. If we don't have enough stimulation, that can lead to depression and could lead to anxiety and certainly this constant feeling of stress. I remember when we went to the London Zoo and we stayed there that night, uh, Mm -hmm. which is a fascinating trip if you all ever get the chance. Um, You get a chance to sleep. By choice. Yeah, and and sleep with the lions. And they take you on this private tour. Next to the lions. Next to the lions. They take you on this private tour, and one of the things that they did with these with the lions is that they noticed that they're losing weight, and they weren't um, they weren't like as social, they weren't as active. So what they did was they put their meat on this zip line, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's incredible. This zip line it, it holds I forgot how many how many hundreds of pounds, and they shoot them across the enclosure, and the lions have to bring it. They don't take it off. The lions have to bring it down off of this zip line that's like 30 feet high and yeah. it's incredible yeah. like everyone's like well, why can't you just put it in a bowl and they're like well we can but they're going to be miserable you know yeah, you so. see this you see this with um pets as well that if they're not getting enough stimulation it could lead to things like you know obesity but also these seemingly kind of neurotic behaviors like constant grooming to the point of actually having patches of fur missing that's literally happening because they don't have enough to do so is this what happens with people in jobs like um that are like over time become so easy they're no they're no longer Monotonous. challenging yeah so yeah, like if you a get lot of really good talk at your about job burnout as mm-hmm. uh, the str- they think that it's hyper stress the stress of having too much work or or mm-hmm. this overwhelm of work but actually it seems like it has more to do with this feeling of um, feeling trapped mm. uh, and a lot of that might come with feeling hypo stress yeah. of not enough of the right kind of stimulation 
So I think that's really important for us as humans or as uh, friends of animals <laughs> to recognize is that there's hyper, hyper stress just as important to prevent as hypo stress. And then there's my personal favorite type of stress, which is you stress. <laughs> Me? <laughs> you, as in EU, like euphoria. Oh, I was like, what are you, hey. <laughs> you are my favorite type of yeah, stress. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, use stress actually feels good. It's the right amount of stress. So, I think when we complain, typically we're talking about hyper stress, and we don't notice when we're at risk of hypo stress, and we don't notice those moments where actually the stress feels good. Hmm. Do you have any examples of that, of you stress that you experience? You stress. I guess what I'm like, for instance, when uh, we did our web series, uh, every shoot, I, I would experience this stress where, you know, the night before I wouldn't eat or I couldn't sleep, but it was like Christmas, um, so to speak. So it was like this mixture of excitement, but really worrying that everyone was going to have a good time, that we were going to get everything done, that we we're so. But at the but I, I wouldn't change anything. Like I wanted, I was looking forward to this stress. Yeah, yeah, um, and and a lot of people don't even recognize that about themselves, that they need you stress. And mm. in fact, a lot of times people fantasize about things like retiring or they can't wait to count down the days to go on vacation or they wait for their weekends. But it actually turns out that people are not necessarily happier in their downtime because oftentimes we swing too far out of mm. hyper-stress mode into hypo-stress mode and you just like sit there and veg in front of the TV and it doesn't actually feel fulfilling. There's a psychologist, you know, my personal favorite, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Ah, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. <laughs> so he recently uh, he actually came up with um, a concept called flow state, which is an altered brain state where your brain is completely focused and in the moment because you're working on something that's just a little bit more difficult than you can handle. So mm. essentially, it's you stress, right? If you're doing something that's too hard, you get frustrated, you give up. Yeah. You're doing something that's too easy, it's boring, it's dull. If you're doing the right amount of challenge, time seems to kind of vanish. You're completely in the moment. You're feeling this richness of the experience. And what he found by having people keep a journal of what they were doing on the weekends is that the weekends are not experienced similarly by all people. The people who got the most value out of that downtime are the people that actually did use stressful stuff that got them into flow state. So these would be people that had projects, that were doing things like volunteering, which we'll talk about in other episodes as many other psychological benefits too. But Basically, he found laziness and sort of vegging actually led to less of a state of well-being. Hmm. I like the idea of the right amount of stress. I, I love that idea that, like, you're jumping out of a plane. Um, I wasn't able to, to get to that fear zone. I wasn't able to get to that stress zone. For me, it was hyper-stress. Whereas for you, it was the right amount of stress to jump yeah. out of a plane. Yeah, actually, so actually, I wanted to talk to you about that because I know that for you, a you stress trigger that took me a really long time to understand is watching horror movies, which is <laughs> like actually, if you, if you stop to think about it, it's really weird. It's a weird thing to do. So I'm curious if you could break down for us what do you think is the psychology behind that? Why do you enjoy watching horror movies? I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Uh, I, I love the idea of being in an unsafe, safe zone for a limited period of time for an hour and a half you are waiting for zombies to jump out you know you you know someone's going to get bit it, it appeals to all of your uh, your basic fears of 
uh, well, I mean, not my, I was going to say my basic fears, <laughs> you know, zombies, vampires, uh, uh, ghouls, the goblins, basics, the basics, witches. Are you scared of witches? Everyone's afraid of witches. Every, you, you're sitting here like, well, I'm not afraid of witches. But if a witch was in front of you, you'd be afraid of a witch. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, Touché. fair enough. But for some people, it's a little too much. It, it's, it's way too much to put yourself in that kind of fear. But for me, because film is so important in my life that I really feel like a particular kind of film, like horror is just the right niche for me to like get in there settle down and buckle in. You got it you got it so this is exactly what psychologists have found so psychologists generally agree that horror movies are enjoyable for some people not everyone because of the physical activation of the suspense the surprise the fear in other words you stress I love the way you put I think you said something like safely unsafe because that's the important caveat so for most people you stress turns into hypo stress if the horror they're watching is real rather than imaginary Hmm. so if you you know it's imaginary, you know you're not actually at risk, you know this is not a real bad thing, then you can experience it as you stress. If you realize that that thing is actually real, all of a sudden it switches into hyperstress. So here's a lovely study done by Jonathan Haidt, Clark McCauley, and Paul Rosen. And remember Jonathan Haidt from the adorable puppies and kittens study in the last episode. So this was another study that he was involved in. In this one, he had participants watch documentary clips of either cows being butchered, Mm. a live monkey being bashed in the head with a hammer, or a child's face skin being turned inside out to prepare for surgery. I'm trying to read your facial expression right now. I think I'd want to watch the child's face. Does any of this sound fun to you? Uh, The child's face I'd want to see. You'd like to see the child's face? Yeah. Wow. So actually what they found is that 90% of participants turned off the videos before they were finished. Yes. Sounds like maybe you would be ten percent. <laughs> I don't know. Outlier. I mean, I've never seen. I, I think. I think uh, definitely. I wouldn't want to watch the cows being butchered or the the monkey being killed, beaten to death. But a surgical procedure that's going to save a kid's life. Okay, so because to you that still feels safe. Yeah. Right. Okay. All right. I mean, it's not like they're doing it to see what 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 would happen to the kid. You know, like. So if I had just said a child's face skin being turned inside out, then you'd be like, oh. I'd be like, probably not. Okay. But so that's so interesting because there's you stress the it's fun scary because it's not real and hyper stress bad scary that comes from realizing that the horrors are real. Which is super interesting because I, what I know of you is that you like to feel very physically safe. You like to lock the doors yes. and the windows yes. and the, you set up an alarm system and all that kind of stuff. Why don't you just give the whole schematic of the house when you're at it? <laughs> and our ADT <laughs> passcode is... And the back door key is... Jeez. To me, it's just a good reminder talking about the stuff that when I feel stressed, I should pause to just say, wait a minute, how much of this is actually bad? How mm. much of it is you stress and I should just shut up and enjoy it and be grateful that it's not hypo stress and that I'm not actually unsafe and then how much of it is just the stress of novelty and Mm. once I get a little bit more familiar with something that stress won't feel quite as acute because I still experience stage fright when I go in front of a a large group live but what that does is going back to the um, you were talking about the arc the The zone of optimal arousal arousal. when you're able to (laughs) when you're able to do that you're able to give a really good performance because it puts you in in the perfect state of alert where you can listen to the crowd, where you can actually take in stimuli and respond. And that's kind of flow state going back to my high chicks on me high. When, wow, when you this get... is all coming around, yo! Yeah. yeah, for me, when I first started teaching, what now over like 13, almost going on 14 years ago? You were 11. I w- <laughs> Well, thank you. <laughs> it's my face cream. Um, I was late to my first day of teaching because I had to stop to throw up 
Uh, it was like, you know, I tend to run late anyway. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, I can totally make it. I can be there by whatever. It was like 8 a.m. the class started, which was a bad idea for me anyway. <laughs> I actually had to hide because I was so close to the university. I had to hide so that my students weren't, wouldn't be like, hey, aren't you the one that was gagging <laughs> right around the corner? So I was like hiding and like heaving because I was so nervous. Yeah. And it, it really, probably four or five years in, I realized that the butterflies were gone and then I kind of missed it. Mm-hmm. So to me, this is also kind of a nice reminder to enjoy those yeah. butterflies yeah. when they are there. I agree. Okay, so we're talking about fear. I want to talk about one other thing related to fear, another emotion that we tend to confuse it with or another sensation we tend to confuse it with. Uh, so I've got one more fun study for you. Okay. This one's a classic. It was conducted in the 1970s by Donald Dutton and Arthur Aaron at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver. So they recruited 85 straight male participants to cross one of two bridges, or at least they thought they were straight. They assumed they were straight. Let's <laughs> not make assumptions. Um, so the first one is what's become known as the rickety bridge. So maybe close your eyes. I'm going to describe it for you. Just right. tell me what sensations it brings up for you. Okay, Brian, you are about to step onto a bridge that is 450 feet of wooden boards connected by low wire cables suspended over a canyon okay you step onto it it sways (laughs) it tilts a little bit Mm -hmm. uh the railings are so low you can't actually hold on to them so you have to use your balance and (laughs) uh basically does all the worst things that a suspension bridge can do okay how are you feeling right now yeah you can open your eyes terrible what are some of the physiological sensations my my chest got cold and my stomach got really tight and I started smiling like uncontrollably. Like I was like, hey, there's no way. I wouldn't I wouldn't do this. I... Smiling, interesting. For those of you who heard the last episode on dimorphous expression, yes. sounds like you were trying to self-regulate a little Maybe bit. Maybe self-regulate. That oh, and my hands. Uh, I, they're, they're a little sweaty. They're a little red and they're a little sweaty. Because I, I, I was when you were telling me that, I was gripping my I was gripping my pants. So then there was a control bridge. So this was this bridge was wider, thicker, it had high handrails, it stood sturdily just above a shallow bit of river. So basically, yeah. not scary. No, no big deal. No, no. You can even you can cross. Yeah. Um, so after these guys What's that supposed to mean? <laughs> so after these guys crossed one of these two bridges, a female interviewer approached them and asked them to fill out a questionnaire. She also gave them her phone number and invited them to follow up with her if they had questions. <laughs> so here's the fun part. Can I guess? Yeah. The rickety bridge guys called the woman. Yeah. So, so it was, yeah, it was 50% of the men who crossed the bridge, they actually followed up to call. So they were like, hey, yeah, I'd like to learn more about this. Um, just really subtly. And uh, 12% of the men in the Sturdy Bridge study yeah. called. So she did still get some phone calls, but uh, not nearly as many. Yeah. So the interpretation is that the men confuse their fear, their feeling, their physiological feeling of fear with sexual arousal. Ooh. And they attributed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this, by the way, this study, there are some methodological issues with it. So it's hard to say for sure that that's why they were calling her. But mm-hmm. the explanation of the researchers is that they actually thought they were attracted to her. Because oh, her be- heart was racing, her palms were sweaty, and they were like, I guess I think she's pretty. You know, that's, ap- that's I can I can understand. No, that's a good guy voice. It sound like all my friends. Yeah, I can I can see that because after, even after like you play a sport or something, and and you know someone comes up to you and talks to you, a woman, you're like, oh wow, I guess I'm attracted to her. So cheerleaders are this. actually hideous. People are constantly <laughs> confused. No. <laughs> yes. This is why I like to keep you on your toes and I like to keep you frightened. Yeah, you do all the time. Uh, do you think there's any truth to the advice that you should take a date to the amusement park? 
to feel fear? Not, not if you're as big a chicken dog as I am, because then it's going to make you look even worse. I, I, like I'm picturing the, you know, the sort of like 1960s thing, you know, where you're like, "Come here, baby," and there's my guy voice again, "Come yeah, here, baby." It's not bad. And you like take her on a ride, and she's like, "Oh no, it's so high, I'm so worried." Yeah. And then she is actually scared, but her, you know, oh, little female you, brain is like tricking her. You must be attracted to this pin. I can see that. Well, maybe pin me. <laughs> No, no. I he, here's my sweater. Well, I don't know why I would well, wear. Maybe he's I wouldn't wear her sweater. Maybe he's chilling. Maybe he is, and maybe she's my size. But uh, but I'm also thinking maybe that's why they take them to horror films. Yep. You know. Yeah. yeah exactly. So so maybe there's something to it. So humans are funny. We don't know ourselves nearly as well as we think we know ourselves. Before we wrap up. I want to help demystify a little bit more of that emotional misattribution, emotional confusion with a quick pop quiz for you, right. Brian. I'm going to tell you some poorly understood or frequently misunderstood emotions, okay. rapid fire. And this is going to be kind of like a pop quiz. How well do you know yourself? How okay. well do you know emotions? Um, so I'll give you two emotions and I'm going to ask you to quickly tell us what's the difference between them. Ready? Yeah. Number one, mm-hmm. anxiety versus stress. Go. Stress is... Uh, physical response to something and anxiety is is something that you're that you're worried about okay all right so super close the way our brain processes this is basically do i have enough resources to handle this pressure that's on me right now that's stress yes and then anxiety is more about the fear of the unknown so you're constantly wondering what's going to happen constantly thinking yep. about the future and all in your worried. head just like i said so two points for you zero points for me go 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 jealousy versus envy jealousy versus envy that's easy jealousy is if you flirt with a guy in front of me that makes me jealous and what is that uh, that makes me like um, upset because uh, you're flirting with that guy. <laughs> so no, 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 no. It's not circular it's because circular. if you weren't flirting with him, I wouldn't be upset. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Don't give me a situation where you feel jealousy. What is jealousy? Jealousy is when you feel like uh, like you <laughs> like something is. <clears throat> no wait, no, no. Jealousy is when you have something taken from you, and envy is when something you want. That's two points. <laughs> okay. I'm the Michael Jordan of psychology. Next. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So so jealousy is I feel it's mine. Yes. That's what I said. Which let's go back to that for a moment because if I'm flirting with this guy, that's a bit of a sexist emotion. I'm just going to say because am I yours? But yeah. You, know you feel I mean. like something that you possess or you own. No, but I don't. <laughs> Everyone out there, I don't mean that Tanya's a piece of meat and she's mine. But something that you want or is, you feel is yours, you feel some connection or some ownership. Yeah, over yeah. It. Not ownership. Then, okay. <laughs> let's just ownership. And then envy uh, is I want what they have. Right? I don't want it. You got it. You're All right. Keep them coming. Okay. Let's go shoot uh, it out. Okay. Let's go with joy versus glee. Oh go. my God. Are you kidding? Let's do something harder. Joy. Stop trying to buy time. <laughs> What the hell glee is? <laughs> I don't know. You, wait, I don't think I've ever had glee. Um, have I ever experienced glee? Okay, joy is something you experience. It's like utter happiness. Joy is something you feel. Uh, it's a high joy is something you feel, as opposed to these other emotions we're talking. No, about. no, no, no. I'm saying, but like glee is. Is that like glitter? <laughs> like glee is like. Like something you feel in it. One is an emotion, and the other one. One is something you feel, and the other is something you feel in the (laughs) fifties. I kind of want to give you a point for for creativity. I think creativity. I get at least one and a half points because I don't know anyone right now, anyone that's going to be listening to this or anyone that's feeling glee. 
<laughs> so I disagree. I feel glee on the regular. So, oh, yeah. of course so you joy do. Is a, it's extreme happiness and extreme positive Ding. emotion. Ding One for that. So you're on five right now. Yeah. Glee is a kind of positive emotion that is also linked with aggression or almost like mischievousness. Man. So this is like when the dogs get zoomies. They're or, experiencing glee. Yeah. Glee is one of our um, really primal or like primitive okay. emotions. All right, let me give you one. Sadness and fleefening. <laughs> What's the difference between sadness and fleefening? I am the one administering the test here. Okay. Next. <laughs> okay, guilt versus shame. Guilt is um, an action that you've done that you regret. And shame is something that has happened to you or that you have done... Wait, wait, wait. No, you can't do that. You can't, you can't be like. What's shame? Shame is. (laughs) You're at six points. Shame. And then then shame, shame is like, I feel shame. No, it's like a blanket. It's a, it's a cloak. It's something you wear. Okay, so Um, glee is glitter and shame is a cloak. (laughs) So there's emotions and then there's a wardrobe of various costume-like paraphernalia. No, shame is... I'm going to make it really simple for you. Ready? Okay. Guilt, feeling bad for what you did. Shame, Mm -hmm. feeling bad for who you are. That's what I said. No. In the beginning, I said and you told me I was off. You threw me by. You were like... Luckily, we have a recording. Um, Okay, so that's two points for me. That's six points for you. Seven points. (laughs) Okay. And finally, and this one counts as... So you can't win, so I... Oh, boy, there's some cold soup in here. Last one, we've got (laughs) wonder versus awe. Go. All right. So she's not all woman. She's Wonder Woman. So wonder is curiosity. Uh, Something that has to do with questions or uh, something that you've never experienced before. Awe is something that's inspiring. It's something that's like bigger than your understanding. That's pretty good. Oh, bam! <laughs> oh, so that's six points. Add it to my other eight points. That's 14 to two. <laughs> oh. You are the emotion master today. Oh. So wonder is a feeling of curiosity and kind of a desire to be present and to learn and to understand inspired by schema discrepancy or surprise. Awe is inspired when we feel really small in the face of something really vast and almost mm-hmm. incomprehensible. It's actually surprise mixed with a little bit of fear, which is interesting. I can see that. I right. can see it. Like, like when you first, the other night we looked through our telescope for the first time. Yeah. And it was, it was vast. and So you feel tiny in a good way. Yes. Yeah. Which is really big. in and of itself kind of beautiful to end on this note to realize that sometimes fear is sexy. Sometimes... Fear is fun. Sometimes fear is really unpleasant. And sometimes fear is beautiful. So what's your takeaway from this? Bringing it back to what we talked about in the beginning, feeling hurt versus feeling angry. Mm. And where angry is the most accessible emotion. But if you can understand that you're feeling hurt and you bring that to the other person, Mm. you're going to skip past a lot of lost time by not being able to communicate with each other or getting angry, never talking to each other or something like that. You're able to... Cut it down, get to the crux of the problem, and yeah. then deal with that. It's almost like when you're misdiagnosed. Imagine you're misdiagnosing a disorder and you're constantly giving yourself the wrong medicine. Mm-hmm. If you're telling yourself you're angry, but actually at the end of the day you're hurt, mm-hmm. you're trying to solve the problem of anger instead of being able to say, you know what, actually, I feel hurt. And the way you're going to address hurt is going to be very different from the way you address anger. 
Before we finish this episode, I'm curious, are there any emotions you wish people felt more? Ooh, um, glee. (laughs) (laughs) Wishing you a more gleeful week ahead, everyone. Yes, squishing you uh, more. Did you say squishing? (laughs) I said squishing, but I meant All right, let's wrap this episode up. All right, hit it, Tanya. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Talk Talk Psych to Me. Me.